The world is wrong. So, in this second part of G is for gender roles, we will be looking at one of the newest, most exciting, as yet relatively uncharted roles out there. Are you ready? Gender neutrality. This role, fresh out the box, is the NB or the non-binary. It's interesting. Being, as far as I'm aware, the only queer person in my immediate and extended family. So, more and more, members of my family will share things they've come across uh, or read about uh, that broaden their idea of what queerness is, who queer people are, and how pre-existing ideas that they had might have been challenged. My mom told me about a film she'd been to see recently called My Policeman, which is about a relationship between two gay men in Brighton in the 1950s and the role of one of the men's wife in all this as well, based on the life and experiences of the writer E.M. Forster. The story then fast forwards to the 1990s and the action continues from there. The wife of one of these men in this film is played by the actor Emma Corrin, who recently came out as non-binary. Emma Corrin, also you might know from The Crown, she played Princess Diana. Not that I've seen it, it's just one of those things that I know for some reason. My mum watches The Crown, and so she'd seen Emma Corrin in that, and then she saw Emma Corrin in this film, My Policeman, and she had a question, which was, because she was confused as to how someone who identifies as non-binary would come out and say that they use more than one set of pronouns. So she'd heard that Emma Corrin, who she's seen in this film and The Crown, Akamaz non-binary, read up about it, saw some articles and saw that Emma Corrin uses she, they pronouns. So we had a chat about it. And though I'm not individually placed from my own experience to talk about it, as I use they, them, myself as a preference, but ultimately at this stage don't care anymore what the pronouns people use about me are. So I gave my understanding of using she, they, or he, they, and to me it seems to be an acknowledgement of existing on a broad, changeable spectrum of gender, but that you feel more closely aligned with one side of that spectrum, say, or certain parts of that spectrum. And as a queer actor like Emma Corrin would know, the roles that come your way, literally the roles you are offered to play, as well as the roles you are seen as being able to occupy, these can be limiting and lacking in nuance. So you are seen as female, though you identify as non-binary, you are vastly more likely to be cast as the female character in a play or a film rather than any of the male characters, unless you have genderless casting, which is where gender isn't really much of a factor in your vision for the story you're telling. From what I can see, from my experience of searching for roles and applying for roles in theatre and film in recent years, this is slowly seeping into the mainstream. Casting calls are more likely these days to ask for a male-transgender actor or a non-binary actor or a non-binary slash female actor, say. So from these interviews that Emma Corrin gave when they came out as non-binary recently, they also mention during their interviews with Gay Times and Vanity Fair and others, the company GC2B, which is a trans-owned company that offers gender-affirming apparel and clothing. So because it's the letter G this week, G is also for GC2B. Go check out their stuff and support queer businesses and therefore people. What a non-binary role is, what an NB role is, that's a very interesting question. Whether in society or in fiction, on stage, on screen. In the UK, while there may still be no results found currently for non-binary politicians, we do fortunately have people like Eddie Izzard running to be MP for Sheffield in 2025's expected next election. And we also have Jamie Wallace, the first MP to come out as transgender. Not an easy thing to do for anyone, least of all an MP in the Conservative Party. A party whose two most recent, um, two most recent in the last two months, 
leaders and prime ministers have terribly anti-transgender stances and rhetoric at their core. I'm getting really excited about the prospect of Eddie being Sheffield's MP. And then beyond that, we could have Eddie Izzard as Prime Minister. We could have our very own British Zelensky, a comedian turned political leader. Cake or leading the British government? When it comes to roles on stage and screen, in theory, any character can be non-binary. This has been shown on stage, I think, most convincingly and beautifully as going to live theatre, particularly if it's small, regional, local theatre, you really have to suspend your belief about where you are and what's happening. A black box, as the phrase goes, for just a very simple, small setting and backdrop. A black box can, with a compelling enough performer and a willing audience, it can represent anything. With film, there are more pyrotechnics and special effects to immerse you in a world that you can fully believe is real. Though that being said, I have seen and heard about shows and films where the casting has lifted the story out of any sense of needing clear identifiers around who is who. The show Bridgerton got some flack for casting people who aren't white in a lavish period drama, and I think proved the point that it really doesn't matter. And the Netflix series The Sandman, which I absolutely loved, based on Neil Gaiman's comic series, had a cast whose gender identity and race was almost irrelevant. Wonderfully so. You are of course aware of the nature of the person you are watching, who is carrying the story along. But at no one point did I ever get the sense that I was being told, pay close attention, this person is of this variety, so this means something especially specific in relation to this story. Because ultimately, what does it matter if you tell a story exactly as it was written in the original, or exactly as it happened in real life? I remember reading one of Tom Waits' quotes, and he was talking about writing songs, to which his approach is very much fast and loose with the truth. He begged the question, if when you're watching a film, and someone leans in and tells you, did you know that this is actually a true story? Does it enrich your experience in the film? Does it make it better or worse? Isn't the point of a story to communicate something to the here and now of who we are and the time we're experiencing it in? Why else do we keep telling stories about the First and Second World Wars? I watched the recent release of All Quiet on the Western Front, Time to Coincide with Remembrance Sunday, and it's a beautifully shot, brilliantly acted, brutally real depiction of the First World War from the German perspective. And do you know what I took away from it? I'm so grateful I don't live in times quite like that. Yes, there has been the ongoing war in Ukraine in 2022, and there are countless injustices and horrors the world over at the moment, but there is nothing quite on the scale of brutal madness as the First World War. It's a film that is a story of a time that feels a million years away, but is speaking to something we need to keep in mind, something we need to remember today, so it stays what feels like a million years away. Why else would all of the people behind the film dedicate their time and resources to telling the story if it didn't have something to say that was relevant to now? Especially for filmmakers, people in the film industry in Germany, telling that story which is incredibly difficult. And why else do we keep telling stories about period dramas? Stories from dead eras? Because they must be communicating some truths about our lives today. So ultimately, would those be sort of commentaries on, you know, things like class? And I suppose you can also then use period dramas where a scene is being very set in stone around things like race and gender equality to challenge that. So for example, casting BAME actors in the roles that would have previously been held by white people, by not casting them as that, you are making a commentary on the fact that we in society are trying to push beyond old ideas and move to something where there is opportunity for everybody. And, you know, people can be seen in roles of being at the highest point of society and that kind of makes it aspirational in a way, which is speaking to what we want for today. So ultimately, does it matter really who plays what part? 
unless it is absolutely fundamental to the story that it be a particular person from a particular identity or background. You could tell the story of Gandhi, I'm sure, with a woman or non-binary person playing Gandhi, but it couldn't be someone without a strong connection to India. Ben Kingsley played Gandhi in the film Gandhi, and he's half Indian on his father's side and half English on his mother's side. You could have a woman or non-binary person play Mozart. Kurt Cobain, Alice Cooper, Jack Kerouac, Kate Blanchett played Bob Dylan in his Blonde on Blonde era incarnation in the film I'm Not There. The question though of whether I, as an AMAB non-binary person, whether I could play, say, Simone de Beauvoir or Virginia Woolf or Joan Jett, I guess society is still exploring whether that is appropriate and maybe it's appropriate on an individual level. I'd make a fucking excellent Joan Jett, by the way, if anyone is looking to finance that film. We'll let you know. It is an interesting question to pose, isn't it? How far can you go beyond people's impression of you? How far can you stretch your ability to get inside someone else's head to tell their story? Where do you draw the line? For you, listening to this now, where do you think your line would be? Are you a Jennifer Aniston or a Rob Lowe? Do you essentially play the same person every time? Do you know very clearly what you're capable of and do it very well? Or do you have multiple faces? Are you like a Johnny Depp or a Meryl Streep, say? Where is the line you draw around what you can convincingly project? Maybe a fun little exercise to explore in your head. Being non-binary, that is a newly evolving role within society. Gender neutrality, as we've discussed previously in other episodes, is not a new role, but the role of non-binary and that term and that phrase and that label is new. In the UK, it is not currently legally recognised as a distinct gender identity, and we'll talk more about that in coming episodes of this podcast. As non-binary people, what roles are there for us when society is not completely embracing of us? Though there are, as I say, more and more accommodations for that. You know, whether it's putting MX on an order form for getting a pair of glasses or it's looking for non-binary MPs that don't actually exist on the UK government website. I suppose these roles, we have to form them ourselves. We have to do everything ourselves. That's a historically recognised part of liberation. You have to do the work yourself if you want it. If You, know, you have to advocate for yourself and challenge for things that you want to see and, and, and things that you want to own and feel that belong to you in society. So when I think about my relation to being non-binary and the role that I am coming to understand and feel myself into that I play. I think about the notion of of growing up and it's a term, it's a term I really don't like because it implies that there is some level that everyone is supposed to get to, right? That you're growing from, from down here when you're a child and you're eventually going to grow up to a point where you're, you're a grown-up. And just because you're an adult, you know, legally, technically, doesn't mean you're going to get there. Um, you know, this idea that, yeah, you're a child, you eventually grow into an adult or grown-up. I prefer the term growing into yourself. And I'm sure that sounds like, to some people, like a bunch of woke nonsense, whatever woke means. But I just, I think, it, I think it's just more appropriate, you know, like you grow into a pair of shoes or a new job, a new role, it takes time to grow into these things. And, oh, we all know it takes time to grow into ourselves. Our human selves, our bodies and our identities and our souls are the same. It takes you time to figure yourself out in a big way. The gender gods sure know it's taken me some sweet time. And you're constantly on that journey of inner growth, of becoming more self-assured and self-possessed. 
which I find problematic, particularly around gender, particularly when gender identities such as being non-binary or gender fluid are generally not valued at this point, not respected, not upheld and defended. And because male and female roles and what they're supposed to be are clearly fleshed out, it can be hard to challenge them to break off into something new. It's, some, it's, it's something that is an ongoing process of discovery for me and I, and, I, and I see these little junctures in the road where I see where I've been traditionally on, subconsciously, on a male track and, and sort of trying to kind of be more fluid and, 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 and trackless um, and, I, and I come across these little junctures and, 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 and bumps where I, I, I see my gender programming. One example of this was um, staying with family recently uh, some some extended family of my stepdad's, his his brother and his brother's wife and their six-year-old kid were staying, coming over from Australia for a couple of weeks, and I saw them a couple of times. And clearly, my mum and stepdad had told them, oh, reuses gender-neutral pronouns, they-them, because eventually, like, the second time I saw them, I think, I heard them using they-them pronouns in connection to me, even with their little kid, which was incredibly sweet. I didn't feel they had to do that, least of all with their, with their child, who's not necessarily going to understand that. And it was just really moving and really sweet. And I wanted to go and say to them, when I said goodbye to them before they went back to Australia, I wanted to go and say to them, thank you so much for using my correct pronouns, even around a child who won't understand necessarily what's going on without a lot of explaining. Yeah, thank you so much, that's really sweet of you. And I wanted to say that, but I didn't say that. Because bizarrely, stupidly, perhaps on my part, certainly stupidly on my part, based on all that I know and think about gender and all that we've talked about so far on this podcast, it's, I felt that that would be a very girly thing to say. <laughs> so, you know, to say, thank you so much for using my correct pronouns, even around a child that's not going to understand that necessarily. That's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, but because I recognise, and talking about that thing of like, how much can you extend beyond what people see you as? You know, it's one thing for an actor, it's another thing for a person you know, being yourself. You've got to be able to own that definition and stretch what other people are going to be able to see for you or not care about it. Because for me, it's limiting. It means that my authentic feelings, my sense of wanting to honour someone being respectful of me and considerate of me, I couldn't express that in the way that I wanted to because I thought it would come across as girly. And that has led for me into all kinds of attempts to try to you know, balance that, whether it's presenting in a more female way, experimenting with whether I felt that I was transgender, whether that worked for me, and ultimately it didn't. But of course, that doesn't take away anything from my respect and love and support for my transgender siblings. It's just not my experience and it never could be. For me, it's something different. And I get these things often in conversation, you know, um, especially if it's with people I've known for a long time, sort of trying to challenge that sense of like, oh, I've been seen as male, and therefore I speak in a more male way, male turns of phrase, or things that I would feel would be okay to say. And maybe it's a sense that I'm thinking subconsciously, oh, you know, women seem to be more caring and considerate and emotionally literate, even though I am all of those things. But I am not seen in that company by society. I'm not seen in the women category. Unless I present myself in that way, you know, there's gonna be there's gonna be that dissonance for people. And ultimately then it's a question of kind of 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 stepping into that new role and shaping it. And and for me that's what I need to do because I I I do beat myself up about it even though it doesn't really matter a huge amount. But it's the the sense of like striving for real authenticity, you know, like I want to be able to say what is in my heart and because that's going to connect me more with people and I want to be able to honour my feelings and, 
you know, be present and participant in this world on my own terms. And yeah, that might be jarring for some people, but it's going to be more jarring for me if I think, I want to say to these lovely people that they've been really lovely, but I can't say that they've been lovely. I can't be lovely, because to be lovely is to be female, and uh, that's not lovely. Let's just make things more lovely and be more ourselves. How about that? Yeah, it's just, it's just that sense of stepping into those new roles, those new non-binary roles that, that non-binary people, genderqueer people are discovering and shaping with every day. You have to rewrite the rule book. I've got to, for myself, rewrite the rule book of what I've come to regard as the female role in uh, what is assumed to be female in society. You know, being sensitive and caring and emotional and attentive. And I've got to own that in my own way, in my own AMAB self. I have to grow into myself. You know, where is up? That's what I, that's what I asked. Like, like, who gets to define what is the up in the grown up? You know, there may be a clearly defined top step, uh, a peak for the male and female roles. But you know, like, honey, like us MBs and gender queers, we're just running on air at this point. It's all a journey, you know. I'm I'm realizing that the ceiling I thought was above me, or the sky that I thought above me, that was like I was growing towards as a male. I was never gonna get there because like that's not that's not me, you know. But like I'm just having to think like, oh, okay. So where is up now? Like and and and, and truth, maybe there's there's not an up. There's just a it's just a continuing growth forward, a growth in a growth forward, and outward and inward, outward and inward. It's all about growing into yourself as an individual, into your own individual self. Men and women are groups are seen as such, and therefore roles have emerged within those groups that have clearly marked uniforms. Nice little uniforms for the men and the women. The blue corner and the pink corner, uniforms. But when someone comes in in a purple, yellow, black and white uniform, where do they go? What's their role? People are threatened. Oh my God, they can do anything. Quick, somebody fetch a glass cliff. Sorry boys and girls, but this Envy's got crampons. Crampons. There's one of my favourite people to quote from the queer community, River Butcher, as he says, The fascists do not want them. They do not want the individual to awaken, to have their connection to the spirit. Yes, that's it. It's a radical act to connect to your inner self and to express that outwardly because it does challenge the roles that we have. And who knows roles better than fascists? They got the uniform game down. They do. Say what you like about the fascists, but they know how to do uniform. Mm. For me, I know that my spirit is female. If you get to know me well enough, we'll see where this podcast goes. I've had enough hallucinogenic experiences to feel her within me, right? Enough experiences on stage experimenting with gender, enough experience in my life experimenting with gender to feel a very strong feminine influence over and within me. Why don't you transition then? I know you said that the, the trans experience is not for you, but seeing as you feel so different from the gender you were assigned at birth, you know, why isn't that something you, that you feel you need to do? Because that's not my personal story. It would be for a trans person. But like he or she or them, I'm an individual, bitch. I go where I like. I've got gender crampons. I've got gender crampons. And so these gender roles we've been discussing, what do they look like for the coming generations, the kids of today and tomorrow? If gender is so entrenched in the roles we assume are given in society, what chance do kids have to be those awakened individuals when they mirror us? When it is hardwired into children to mirror from an early age as a matter of survival? You know, if the mirror that they are at that age is reflecting back to them, gender role here, gender role there, they're gonna go, oh, okay, which one do I look like? Which one am I being told I should be? Which uniform am I being 
thrust into. Have you ever thrust a child into a uniform? It's very difficult. Maybe just, you know, put put them in it, you know, or, or, or let them do it themselves, you know. It's always good to teach kids to do things. Less thrusting of children would be would be great. That sounds quite odd. But Reese, so many kids clearly grow into adults and mirror these roles you're criticising. Maybe that's just the way things are supposed to be. Let me answer that question with an anecdotal example. Love an anecdotal example. There's a video I came across shared via conservative commentator Matt Walsh's channel, which I believe is called The Daily Wire. At the time I watched this video, his profile pic on social media and beyond was a photo that asks, what is a woman? And it's not a scientifically motivated question, I feel, but one he seems to be reserving for levelling at transgender and gender fluid people who identify in a way that he doesn't agree with. Much like you might say to someone who is, who is bouncing a ball, why are you bouncing that ball? Because you want that ball. It's not their ball, they don't get balls. You know, the balls are for women, born women only. Give me the ball. What is a ball? Anyway, we can address that question going forward, but not the question of what is a ball. I mean, this is what happens when you're a tangential person. You get into tangents and you can't get back out of them. It's like, I need a tangential roadmap to tell me where I started and where I am and how I get back to where I was. We'll look into that question of what is a woman and why are the conservative writers so obsessed with it in future episodes. But in this video that his channel shared, it's a video called Fathers Should Teach Sons to Be Gentlemen. And this title is emblazoned across the top of the scene throughout. And the scene is commentator Ben Shapiro and four other guys sat in leather chairs with cigars surrounded by bottles of expensive looking spirits. Your old school sismel alarm bells might be ringing at this point. And to top it all off, there is literally a woman on a screen. There's just, she's just, she's not in the room. She's literally being screened in from somewhere else. Like, who knows? Maybe she's in a different state or country. Or maybe she's just in the next room. Like, but perhaps she tried to enter, but the maleness in the room was just too strong. And the cameraman said, you better step in this side room, love. We'll screen you in, we'll protect you, don't worry. So instantly, I am very suspicious of what this video is going to tell me about what a parent should do for their children. What his opinions on gender roles is going to be. But let's go with it. So, so this video begins with one of the men asking Ben Shapiro how many children he has. He has a boy and a girl, whose Shapiro jokes are exactly the same, exactly the same. Followed up with, you'd have to be an actual insane person to believe that. A society that believes that is the stupidest society ever to have existed. He goes on to say, girls are sweet and wonderful when they're small, and they can exactly sit and they can play and they're really nice. And he has this weird childlike grin on his face when he says this. And as for boys, he says, boys are just insane, boys are suicide machines. All they try to do is run into the street and break their face on things. As a father, he believes for his girls that he spends most of his time trying to protect them from various outside threats. Apparently, according to what they talk about in this video, this is also the job of the man towards his wife. A father and a man, as far as they're concerned, have to warn their daughters, their wives, their girls, that men are not to be trifled with. Men can be very threatening, Ben Shapiro says. The right man could be the best thing in the world, but there are plenty of dangerous men out there. So he believes that his job as a father is to protect his daughters from that. From men, basically. And so his job as a father to his sons is to teach his sons, his boys, to be gentlemen. As, as he said, apparently boys either build or they destroy. There's, there's, just, there's only those two options. There's no in between, it seems. I wonder what Ben Shapiro would have done, for example, if he was father to non-binary writer Jacob Tobiah or Alec V. Menon. 
Jacob Tobiah claims themselves that they had, at the point of being a child, 300% gender. They wanted to run and get muddy and scream and play, then they wanted to play with dolls and clothes and makeup and sing and dance. But according to Shapiro, all day long, either the boys are building a terrible actor or they're knocking it down. That's all they do, that's all they do. So therefore, you have to train this little maniac to be a gentleman, to be constructive and fair, otherwise he'll become a jerk, a destroyer. Now, he then picks up on a very interesting observation about teenagers and the differences between boys and girls. He recognises that both can be destructive, but the boys tend to lash out at others, whereas girls tend to lash out at themselves. But he never asks why that is. In the same way that he never asks where the bricks came from that the boy used to make the tower in the first place. Were they inside his mother's womb like a boy kinder egg package? This boy comes with bricks. So, according to Ben Shapiro, Girls turning on themselves is why anorexia and bulimia are more common among girls than boys. According to Beat Eating Disorders, which is a UK charity, 0.1% of males aged 11 to 34 have an eating disorder, and 0.3% of females have an eating disorder of the same age range. So in a room of a thousand people, that's an average of three girls to every boy. According to Shapiro, this perceived higher rate is because girls turn their pain in on themselves. He doesn't ask, however, where that pain is coming from, what that pain is, why that pain is there in the first place. He acknowledges that more self-esteem building is required for girls because of the self-destructive tendencies they have, whereas for boys, his words exactly, you basically teach them to more or less keep yourself under control. The basic implication of which is, girls are inherently not enough, and boys are inherently too much. Apparently, again according to Shapiro, a study shows that single mother communities with no men around is the single greatest predictor of teenage crime, because there are no men around, whether father or neighbour, to teach boys how to become defenders and not aggressors. Again, his terms and his words. Boys who are not defenders become aggressors. So like all of this, pretty much quoting or repeating verbatim what he said in this video to these four guys with their, with their, their whiskey and their cigars and their women, women being beamed in from outer space. Like, all of this is just heartbreaking to me. It's really, really heartbreaking. So, by this logic, boys only have two choices, being defenders or, or aggressors. There's that false binary again. And in this video, in this room of very old school presenting men, one guy who was literally in a smoking jacket with an American flag bow tie and a cigar, a picture that would fit a man in the 1920s, in the 1820s, and apparently also the 2020s. This guy with the bow tie and the cigar brings up toxic masculinity, which Ben Shapiro jumps on like a neuroscientist on a perceived minor variation between a male brain and a female brain. Sorry, I'm the worst. Shapiro cries, Oh, the, the left, they label everything as toxic masculinity. A man looks at a woman and says she's pretty. That's toxic masculinity. And this feels to me to reveal the emotional core of, of his argument. Because, as I've observed in previous episodes, and if we are to believe William James's theory of where emotion comes from, emotion is more powerful than logic for humans. The emotion behind what he's saying seems to be that, you know, toxic masculinity is labelled everything, particularly when you're just trying to be in his eyes, nice to a woman by calling her pretty. It seems to be the sense that he himself, Ben Shapiro, as a man, something he clearly identifies with very strongly and specifically, it seems that he's being told that he is no longer relevant, that he's no longer valued, that he's no longer need, that he is no longer needed, that his sense of self as a man is being challenged in society, that his idea of who he fundamentally is is being threatened. Presumably, it is gentlemanly to compliment a woman on her appearance. I mean, it would have been, 1920s, 1820s, we're in the 2020s. And from this, complimenting a woman on her beauty, there seem to be two implications at the core of the idea of masculinity that Ben Shapiro is upholding. One, 
that the man should value female beauty very highly, and two, that the woman should highlight female beauty very highly herself and appreciate affirmations of this. But what if she doesn't care? Come on, Ree, as we found out in the first half of this podcast, the w- women's are the carers here. Women's care about these things. What if she values her intelligence more than her beauty? Again, as we found in the breadwinner uh, part, you know, the, clearly the man is more intelligent, and the leadership part as, as well, and maybe the entertainer as well. Um, uh, you know, come on, like, beauty is more important. What if she doesn't need a defender? But then what will I do? You don't want me to be an aggressor, do you? You don't want to see me with my bow tie off. And this is where the terrifying fact of the self-defined options for men that Ben Shapiro and people of like-minded thinking outline. This is where it becomes a real problem, I feel. Because if there's no longer anything to defend, as in your girls, your women, and your gentlemanly place in society, then by default, by your own logic, your only other option is to become an aggressor, to attack, right? Or is it that you remain in the role of the defender? You respond to the call to action against the toxic swathe of gender fluidity because you identify so closely with being a man that you're not leaving yourself much wiggle room. And as I said before, wiggling is incredibly important. It's essential for existence. If you've got no wiggle room in your gender identity, you're clearly so entrenched in this old school traditional masculinity, which you know I don't have a problem with on the surface, but when you're basically saying that you can either be a defender or an aggressor, you're boxing yourself out of progress. You're making it really hard to progress with society, to progress in yourself. You know, and of course, no one is saying that those are your only two options as a man. No one is saying, okay, you're a man. You can either wear the defender uniform or the aggressor uniform. And you may find they're actually reversible, you know. You put the defender one on, on this way and then you reverse it and it becomes the aggressor one. Pretty neat, huh? But by their own definition in this video, Shapiro and those who think like him, those are the only places they believe they have to go by their own logic or that they feel people are forcing them to go, well, I wanna be the defender, but you're making me be the aggressor. You know, and both can be aggressive stances, however you look at them, I would argue. It's saying, if you won't let me defend you, you are saying that I have to attack you. You made me do it. That may sound stupid, but that is the core implication of their view of men and their view of women, I feel. And that is really terrifying. It's really terrifying. It's why I feel there is a duty to be respectful of people's views, even if you think they are insane, as I think this view in particular from Ben Shapiro and those like him in this video. I think it's insane. But you need to be respectful of people's views because there could be really negative outcomes if you don't understand the path that their identity has set them on and where they might end up if they feel diverted from that natural path. So you identify very closely with being a traditional male role in society. You feel people are telling you that that role is blocked, it's not available to you. You have to take off the uniform and you're saying, I'm doubling down, I'm gonna defend and aggress my way to keeping this. And I'm not saying just give in to them or let them do that, you know. You know, it's it's the complicated thing when roles are interrelated, when your role relies on somebody else having a certain role. So if you're a traditional man, it relies on a woman having a traditional role. A role where you get to compliment her, where you get to defend her, where you get to protect her. And then that's the complicated thing of society, you know. It is interrelated, incredibly interrelated. But, you know, doesn't mean we just have to give in to those traditional roles. But if we're going to get anywhere, I feel we have to understand where people are coming from especially those we disagree with, so we can try and move forward. Let's remember, this video literally began with the tagline, fathers should teach their sons to be gentlemen. Okay, so that's your parenting model. 
which expressly acknowledges that boy children should be treated differently, a specific way. In relation to other girl children or future girl adults, the boys should be gentlemen, which implies that the girls should be a certain way too in relation to that. I don't know, maybe there's another video in a female version of the same room, a female uh, universe in the multiverse, with a smiling man being beamed in over a television screen, and five women are discussing over Prosecco how gender-free parenting is ridiculous. <laughs> and the video title is, Mothers should teach their daughters to be ladies, because boys need to grow up to be gentlemen, and therefore girls need to grow up to be ladies. Ladies. I mean, I would totally forgive you if you couldn't even get through the first five seconds of this video if you've gone and looked it up. It is commenting on whether boys and girls are gender neutral, can be gender neutral from birth, and they literally already have a plan for them to be specifically gendered. It's in the title. It's... wow. It's square watermelons, but the humans are the watermelons. Or to put it another way, I see raising children as boys and girls in those roles as a bit like growing trees in a particular direction. You know, you see kind of, um, you know, forestry work being done to, uh, I suppose, when they put those like uh, holds around trees because they need, for, for their plans for the area, it seemed that they need to grow trees in a certain direction. And it suits us as humans for them to grow in a certain way so they can look nice, but in an ordered way and biodiversity and shit. Yeah, that's good too. So we anticipate the direction of the growth through the installation of supports and guides so they fit neatly into where we want them and what they're capable of. And we do the same for trees. But um, yeah. How are boys and girls that different, really, you know? What would happen if we let them grow freely? Ben Shapiro would argue that they will just go and be boys and girls, that the boys will be mad and insane and aggressive and obsessed with towers and running into things, and the girls will be soft and sweet and obsessed with dolls and bears and have just inexplicable uh, bulimia and anorexia and self-loathing. Just where does it come from? It just must be. It just must be. It must become come in their girl kinder egg package. This girl comes with self-loathing. But I'm willing to guess, without seeing inside his mind, that Ben Shapiro is utterly convinced that boys and girls are different from birth without any outside influence. That it's nature over nurture. Well, I know that, he just illustrated that through his example. But what if he had no prior aspersions around gender? Would he just let them get on with it? And they would then be ungendered fluid in his household? No, probably not, because Ben Shapiro, like you, like me, lives in a gendered world, in the big old gender soup. And this may seem like an easy get out of jail free card for me. Oh yeah, you and your gender soup again. A free pass blank check that I can just bring out whenever I want, whenever I'm struggling to find an answer to a searing question. Here we are, gender soup. Did anyone order the gender soup? Oh, I don't care, you haven't. it. And yeah, I could easily overuse that. I, 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 yeah, I could really overuse that gender soup. Do love me some gender soup, or do I? But you can't deny that fact, can you? If the world around you is gendered, if you yourself are gendered, and especially if you identify very closely with that, how can you not be influenced by all of that, that gender soup? Especially if you, like Ben Shapiro, believe before you're even born that you're gendered. You know, your kids are just gonna mirror that. Imagine kids are sent into two different rooms to figure out who they are, the roles they're going to play, or rather who they're supposed to be, the roles they're supposed to play. So the boys go to the left and the girls go to the right. And these rooms have just been freshly painted. There's blue in the boy room and there's pink in the girl room. Even if the boy who has just entered didn't want to get involved and there were signs on the wall that said, don't touch the wet gender paint. You know what kids are like. They're going to end up with some blue on them. They're actually going to actively seek it out. 
Same with if the girl was pushed into the girl room with pink wet paint on the walls. Whether you want it or not, whether it's in you or not, whether you can resist it or not, you can't help but get some on you. And society has, to this point, literally been divided into two different rooms in so many areas of life. Boys here, girls over there. Is it any wonder then that there are observable differences in the roles that we are seen to be able to play, in the roles that we see for ourselves, in the roles that we occupy for ourselves? And it becomes such a ritualistic thing, especially if you're a trans person, to go from that one room to the other, from that one role to the other. There's, there's, there's less... There's less tolerance of fluidity within that system. You're, you're seen to be formed in one part of the tribe, and then you make the walk over to the other side. They're going over to the other side. Or like me, you're a non-binary and gender-neutral person and say, I don't believe in rooms. But you must believe in rooms, Ree. It's either this one or that one. That's your only option. Nah, fuck rooms. Smash the walls down. Make it all one giant room. So it's not even a room anymore. It's just space. Yeah. And to make that leap from room to room, from roll to roll, to fluidly go between them. As River Butcher observes, only you can free yourself from the idea of what you think a man is. Me saying I'm a man and you disagreeing with me, I can't change that. I have my idea and you have yours. Coming back again to that thing of like, how, how far can you stretch what you see as possible for yourself? This is something that trans people and non-binary people, gender fluid people are very familiar with. And everybody is welcome to stretch that because roles are very stretchy. I don't know what roles are made of, I don't know the exact substance, but it seems to me to be very stretchy. If you want it to be. Go on, give it a pull. Give it a pull. See what it's like. You might find it's quite stretchy. As was discovered in Rwanda, with so many men being killed in a time of war, the women had to be embraced into areas of society where they were traditionally barred from. So in a very brutal, tragic, but poetic irony, it was a sexist society's attitudes towards gender roles that sent the men to die, and then by default, the women were left to pick up the pieces. The men were seen as the ones having the role of fighting the wars, and they went off and they were killed, and then the women were left behind because they're not seen in the role of the defender or the aggressor, and then they had to pick up the pieces. Women were given opportunities beyond their traditional reach, beyond their traditional roles, because the men were the ones traditionally looked to to fight and to die. Which is both equal opportunity and sexist at the same time, because in the sense that there is only an equal opportunity in the first place because there are simply not enough men left to uphold the sexist norms that they had before anymore. The same was true in the aftermath of the First and Second World Wars worldwide. Women stepped into the production and manufacturing roles, the traditionally male spheres, as the men were sent off to war, though in the ensuing years, the women were then expected to go back to the more traditional roles of secretarial work and maintaining the home. Not very stretchy roles at that point. Now, there are more equal opportunities for people of all genders, all backgrounds and identities, to kill and maim in the name of a flag. Hooray! Though, I don't know about you, but I don't think there are enough drag queens in the army. That's, that's one area of representation that we need to work on pronto. Pronto. Because I really think the armed forces are missing a trick. I can't imagine, personally, anything more terrifying than a drag queen with an AK-47 running towards me. Or driving a tank. I love drag queens. I am a drag queen myself, but they're f fucking terrifying. You know, <laughs> like, if they want to be, right? Imagine a drag queen with, with, with an AK-47 or driving a tank. Because not only will they shoot you to the ground with their wicked aim, but they'll have a deadly put-down that will absolutely slay you. Oh, honey, I can see why you wear camouflage. I wouldn't want to be seen with a face like that. Forget the guns, the tanks. That's true psychological warfare. Forget the guns, the tanks, the drones. Drag queens, bitch. 
drag queen division of the armed forces. That's how you win a war on any front. That's how you win a war in Y fronts tucked back to the eyeballs. <laughs> you think I'm scared of you after what I just did to my balls? Firing a sniper rifle at a range of a mile? Try doing your eyeliner in a pub toilet with a flickering overhead light. Drag queens would make amazing spies too. Though they would struggle with the remaining undetected part, you know, I feel... I can't imagine a drag queen spying quietly. Now, as a non-binary person or trying to own and figure that out, I've only realised recently I saw myself in the role of a child. Someone who wasn't yet fully grown. Autonomous, trustworthy, to be respected with their own choices. In clothes shops, in the workplace, in social company. You know, that's just my experience. I'm not saying that that speaks to every part of being non-binary or gender fluid. You know, but if there's my lived experience and my theory on the role that we play, how we're perceived and what we need to do and communicate to own our own role in society, you know, that sense of that there's that there's that cliff, you know, that, that gender cliff of like you grow up to here and then you can't go any further because you're non-binary or trans and gender fluid and you're seeing that, oh yeah, you're not a real grown-up, you can only get to this certain point right and you're gonna eventually gonna fall off it and just you know you, you're gonna realize you just have to grow up like the rest of us we have to challenge this idea that we're not going through a phase that we're not irresponsible children at play who will eventually grow up we're not going through a phase we're not irresponsible children at play we're not waiting to grow up we're not the peter pans of this world well not entirely we're growing into ourselves we know who we are and that scares the shit out of some of you we're not growing up down we're growing into ourselves we know who we are and that scares the shit out of some of you because we play freely with things you feel have hard rules and immovable barriers that roles aren't stretching well i'm telling you they're as stretchy as my g-string right we play with gender roles you fear them i feared you before but not anymore mic and drop bitch We'll see you next week, Drudgeheads. For now, much love and all the gender. Drudgecast is a production by Barush Voices for Drudge. Label without labels.